Well, uh, four years ago, there weren't that many people calling the president dangerous. And um, since my work has mainly been in preventing danger and preventing violence, uh, violence is uh, the end product of a long process where there are many points at which we could intervene and prevent dangers and uh, the signs were all there. Uh, and so mental health expertise was particularly important because uh, unlike what most people believe, we don't just diagnose mental illness all the time. We actually more often, and in fact, with every encounter, assess dangerousness and uh, the dangers to self, to others and to the public uh, are accessible, uh, not only through a personal interview, but uh, through any kind of information that we can obtain. And as long as we have enough information, we have a societal duty to intervene. All right, welcome back to Advent Next. Uh, today, I am so delighted to have on the guest, uh, Dr. Bandy X. Lee. She has um, her uh, MD from Yale, as well as her uh, MDiv. And she is an American um, psychiatrist with Yale University. She has had different experiences. She's a specialist in violence prevention programs in prisons and, and in the community. She's also wrote a uh, a textbook on nine violence. And I really wanted to bring her onto the show today because, you know, given in light of the the events that happened last week on Capitol Hill, I really just wanted to get a perspective of how we as a community of faith can be more integrated in our, you know, in, in how we approach and interact with our community, uh, the ethical implications that might be upon us um, to act in certain circumstances, and to really just give a more robust understanding of the day and age that we're living in. Um, she wrote a book uh, called The Dangerous Mind of Donald Trump. Uh, sorry, The Dangerous Case. I keep saying mind, but that's just my own mind. Uh, the Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, she brought in uh, 37 different psychiatrists and mental health experts to talk about, you know, the fact that they are in um, a profession where they are experts in a specific field, but have been given a kind of a gag order and being able to speak about something that they're very well trained in. And it would be like, you know, uh, bringing on a doctor to talk about somebody's injury that happened on, on a football team and giving the audience insight to what that recovery might look like. There's kind of a given that that doctor is not this person's doctor, but that given that person's uh, expertise and field, that they're able to offer some type of assessment and that that's been a, a struggle, um, particularly within their profession. So just we're going to dive in a little bit to this. But one thing that I wanted to bring out and leave our audience with as we enter into this discussion is there is a particular text in Exodus that I, I, I feel like this really applies to Dr. Lee's kind of... Uh, you know, the duty to warn is, is the theme. She's also done a conference on this. And there is an ethical duty if we're looking even in the Old Testament perspective, right? Uh, there's this uh, chapter in, in Exodus 21, 28, where it talks about the ox who gores a man to death. And it says, if the ox gores somebody then, and that person dies, the ox shall be stoned and the owner shall not be liable. But if the owner knew that this ox was prone to gore in the past and did nothing about it, then if that ox scores again and kills someone, then both the ox and the owner will be liable. And so there is a duty that we have to warn and to make provisions. And there's an ethical implication of how we interact with this world and the things that we do. And so, uh, you know, 
I'm going to turn this over to my guest right now, and maybe she can correct me if, if anything I said in the introduction about what she does was incorrect, but also just give us a little more insight into what you're doing right now and the work that you do. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, and I really appreciate that uh, Exodus uh, verse. Um, well, uh, to just describe a little bit about myself, uh, I'm a forensic psychiatrist, that is a psychiatrist who works at the interface of psychiatry and the law, and so I do a lot of prison work, I do a lot of violence prevention work, and um, interdisciplinary work in uh, using public health approaches to preventing violence. And uh, so I have been doing this. I taught at uh, Yale School of Medicine for 17 years and at the Yale Law School for 15 years. Uh, and before that, uh, I did a, a fellowship in medical anthropology, which took me to East Africa. Tanzania in particular, and later uh, Ivory Coast. Um, and before that, I did my divinity degree at the same time as my MD degree because I uh, really was pursuing a doctorate in medicine for humanitarian reasons and wished to complement my education. But of course, the education is of a transformative kind. And so I have made use of it in more ways than one. And also I consider my work in medicine to be ministry. And so it's not hard to uh, combine the two. Yeah. yeah, and you seem to have a really ethical approach. I mean, I see that word used a lot when you're talking about the people that you chose even to be a part of the book that you wrote and just kind of your approach to like, what it seems like you're wrestling with, you're really trying to find the line in ethics and medicine. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. Ethics is of foremost importance to me, uh, partly because having that moral compass, um, it, it, it nourishes your soul and it clarifies your mind, helps you to think clearly, even when society is not quite going along with you or even your field goes against you uh, to figure out with clarity what the right thing to do is. And um, of course, I've spent a lot of time in prayer regarding this. And uh, it would not be an exaggeration to say that I was called to do this. Um, and so when I was trying to figure out how to do this ethically and uh, correctly. I reached out to colleagues who had had um, ethical stances in difficult times in the past. And that included uh, renowned luminaries such as Dr. Robert J. Lifton, Dr. Judith Herman, Dr. James Gilligan. And, uh, and I really appreciated their coming on board with me. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I, I know we're going to get into this more, uh, but I kind of want to jump ahead. Uh, I, I do want to get into the book that you wrote, the textbook on, uh, on nonviolence and, or violence and an interdisciplinary approach to it, understanding the consequences uh, and the causes and the cures. But because you're on this topic right now about the ethics 
and what and how you're wrestling with this. You know, I just wanted to, because the, the book that you wrote, I mean, uh, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, that that was something where, you know, people within your own field were not sure if you should be making these types of assessments. Uh, maybe you can talk to us. We'll start there. We'll start with the book. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, behind, you know, the inspiration for writing it, some of the struggles, the ethical struggles that you dealt with in, in, in publishing it, and some of the, the consequences that you might be dealing with now after having uh, published that about three years ago. Yes. Um, well, uh, four years ago, there weren't that many people calling the president dangerous. And um, since my work has mainly been in preventing danger and preventing violence, uh, violence is uh, the end product of a long process where there are many points at which we could intervene and prevent dangers and uh, the signs were all there. Uh, and so mental health expertise was particularly important because uh, unlike what most people believe, we don't just diagnose mental illness all the time. We actually more often, and in fact, with every encounter, assess dangerousness and uh, the dangers to self, to others, and to the public uh, are accessible, uh, not only through a personal interview, but uh, through any kind of information that we can obtain. And as long as we have enough information, we have a societal duty to intervene. And so what truly shocked me and in fact propelled me to action was the American Psychiatric Association's distortion of ethical guidelines. Uh, I actually found it very alarming that they used ethics to gag an entire profession, not just their members. Their members are only 6% of practicing mental health professionals. And um, they used what is called the Goldwater Rule, which uh, as the name suggests, comes from uh, another presidential campaign by Barry Goldwater uh, decades ago and came out of a political compromise, not out of ethical deliberation or scientific findings or even practical um, evolutions, um, but based on a political compromise. And so it was bound to be politically abused uh, and it was abused. Two months into the Trump presidency, the American Psychiatric Association changed the guideline. It's actually not a rule, just a, a very obscure guideline that no one really cared about until this presidency and simply went on a public campaign to promote the idea that you cannot know anything without a personal interview and uh, that anyone who tries to do so was acting unethically. Uh, of course, uh, even uh, as you were mentioning before, um, a, a heart doctor or um, uh, an orthopedist uh, doesn't have to, um, I mean, doesn't uh, completely lose all of their context and knowledge. Uh, even if they haven't examined the individual, there is some general knowledge they can bring. And that is even more so for a mental health professional where there's tons of footage of uh, video interviews of um, 
observations over time and abundant collateral reports and even sworn testimony. Uh, so it wasn't a question of uh, needing an interview. Also, even with diagnosis, we no longer require an interview. That hasn't been the case since 1980. We rely more on external observation. And so it's all the more irrelevant. And yet they went on public campaigns and uh, talked to the media to stop them from having any mental health experts. Again, not just their members, but anyone at all. Um, since the Goldwater Rule conflicts with the state licensing, uh, with the First Amendment, the, no licensing board is allowed to adopt it. And so they had no legitimate way of censoring people. Um, if they did, they would go through ethics investigations, not public campaigns. So it was very clear that they were doing this for political reasons and we did not know the reason uh, until recently when two uh, investigative articles revealed that they did it for federal funding. Uh, even the CEO of the American Psychiatric Association uh, confessed that it was the reason. And, uh, and they have vastly increased their profits as well as moved their head headquarters from Virginia to Washington, DC. Uh, and so under a dangerous presidency, they have reaped a lot of benefits for protecting a dangerous president. I, in fact, hold them responsible for all the tragedies that have ensued. Because once you normalize mental pathology and prohibit experts from speaking about it, then, uh, then anything becomes possible. As we are seeing, so many people have now bought into the president's rhetoric his um, false beliefs and, um, and the pathology has spread to a point where it's become very difficult to contain. Wow. And I think and you make a distinction too in the book that there's a difference between offering an assessment of someone and giving them a label and offering a level of danger. And can you kind of explain the difference between those two? Yes. Both are actually mental health evaluations. Uh, the first is called a diagnosis and diagnosis is usually for treatment of one's patient. Uh, so uh, diagnosing is usually not advised for someone who is not a patient and a public figure is not a patient. We don't even need a diagnosis. We need uh, to know if the person is dangerous and if the person is fit to serve. So dangerousness, as I said, is uh, more a cumulative assessment in that if uh, the information can come from any source, in fact, usually information outside of the individual is more helpful than a personal interview. Dangerous inter individuals often mislead or lie. And so uh, we have had an abundance of information, uh, even uh, not only reports, but his, his own report of unfiltered, undisciplined uh, stream of thoughts uh, every hour, every day. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was quite clear that he had a dangerous pattern of thinking. Uh, he had um, a proneness to violence. 
which was seen in his actions, attitudes. Um, verbal aggression, for example, is uh, associated with violence, um, boasting about sexual assaults, inciting violence at his rallies, um, expressing attraction to uh, destructive weapons and uh, taunting allied and enemy nations alike, including nuclear powers. All these are signs of danger that pose an imminent security risk to the public and we have a responsibility to the public. Uh, in fact, the purpose of the Goldwater Rule ostensibly is to improve our community and to better public health. And so uh, that's in line with our primary responsibility to society, which is almost as important as our responsibility to patients. That comes in the first paragraph of our ethics code and uh, it is universal through all uh, medical ethics codes, um, whereas the Goldwater Rule is not adopted by any mental health association other than the APA. Hmm. What, what was like the tipping point for you that said, I need to write this, or I need to collect these essays from these different uh, mental health professionals? Because I'm sure, and maybe you can describe a little bit about this, that in your profession, as well as probably in your faith, there's a, a virtue to being nonpartisan, right? And to uh, make a stand like this, uh, immediately puts you into the partisan party lines where people are assuming that you're just a liberal Democrat who's against the, the, the president. I mean, so what were some of the challenges that you faced maybe on those fronts of, of taking an action and then being labeled uh, as this partisan ally? And then what was the tipping point for you saying, I have to write this book because it's my duty or my ethical obligation to do so? Yes, thanks for asking that question because it was actually easy for me. Uh, I had not been involved in partisan politics at all in the past. I mean, I voted during presidential elections only and, um, and I was doing mostly global work. Uh, and so I, uh, domestic politics seemed rather trivial compared to uh, trying to prevent wars or civil wars or gender-based violence around the world. Uh, and so, um, so I was purely responding to what I saw as a medical need. Uh, and you asked what the tipping point was. Uh, it was actually a call from the public. Uh, I had just um, helped to bring in a federal investigation uh, of Rikers Island for a subculture of violence and, um, and I had written a report uh, about the violence in the prisons. And so a lot of the civil society members already knew about me. The morning after the presidential election of 2016, I was inundated with calls, with messages, with um, emails from members of the public, uh, lawyers, um, civil society members, um, documentary filmmakers, those who were concerned about um, the dangers that were to come with this presidency, the violence that was to come. I think they were thinking mainly of um, hate crimes, but, but uh, also some were mentioning about uh, the dangers to the environment, 
uh, in terms of nuclear war, and they knew about how I connected all these types of violence, um, as in my textbook that you had just mentioned. Um, it's an interdisciplinary textbook that brings together all the different forms of violence and how they are interconnected. So the fact that we have, we uh, had elected a dangerous president was not so much just an individual issue of Donald Trump. It was a public health issue and also a statement about our general state of collective mental health. Uh, as well as the potential for all different forms of violence that would affect society. Wow. That is incredible. I, I just want to take a, a moment now to, to let's talk about this textbook because, uh, you know, what, what you're describing is you're saying, you know, there was a culture of violence that was going to begin, begin to uh, be created during this presidency. And people were already seeing that the milieu uh, for what, really happened, you know, last week on Capitol Hill, like that was kind of an, an almost an inevitable consequence of the, maybe not inevitable, right? That's, it could have been prevented, uh, but that was, you know, maybe the natural consequence of this type of milieu. And so tell, tell me a little bit about your textbook that you created and what was the motive behind that um, in, in creating that textbook? How did you get started in doing nonviolence work? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned a culture of violence because uh, violent incidents are not random. And they are actually, um, the incidents themselves are usually incidental, meaning you know they may or may not occur depending on the circumstances at that very moment, and that can always change. But the proneness to violence, the violent propensities uh, in the culture, in the individual, uh, are have long been there, and um, and so having a, a violence-prone president in the midst of an increasingly violent culture uh, was like lighting a match to gasoline and uh, allowing the the uh, destructive uh, traits to spread, and that's what caused the violent insurrection of last week. Um, so uh, about 25 years ago uh, or 23 years ago, I started uh, consulting with the World Health Organization and I was invited to um, help with their launch of a landmark report on violence and health. Uh, that was in 2002 and it was truly groundbreaking in looking at violence as a public health issue rather than just a criminal justice and uh, security issue allowed for countries around the world to implement prevention strategies, programming, uh, change of laws and law enforcement practices to be able to vastly reduce violence. And the evidence has been there for several decades other than just a few pockets around the world, violence has dramatically decreased, taking on uh, recommendations from the World Health Organization. 133 countries had signed on and actively implemented policies. So um, this showed just how violence is not a part of our nature, not inevitable, 
but something that is uh, learned, trained, and therefore can be prevented. So I was always interested in prevention uh, because even with mental disorders and medical disorders, prevention works much more effectively than intervening after people have gotten ill. Uh, of course, that's important too, but uh, you can prevent a lot of suffering by doing a little much earlier on than, than spending all kinds of resources and, and, um, uh, and, and time and effort after uh, things have gotten very bad. So uh, that's very much the case with violence. Uh, so the more deeply we understand violence, the better we can prevent it, the more uh, clearly we can see things coming. And uh, I was afraid that this kind of turn toward violence would happen because, uh, because of the progress that had been made led by the World Health Organization, a lot of people were becoming complacent. Um, for example, there was the Steve Pinker book uh, on uh, the better angels of our nature, I believe it was called, um, how violence has uh, simply decreased and has, is no longer a problem. That was published in 2011, I believe. Uh, and those kinds of um, rhetoric and, and lack of concern for the potential that is there for violence um, really worried me. And that is why I decided to write the textbook on violence as you can, if you have read portions of it, I, uh, I'm quite uh, vocal about the dangers of structural violence, which is the rising inequalities in society that uh, are the most potent uh, stimulant of violence. And uh, structural violence alone is called violence because it is very deadly. It's deadlier than all the behavioral violence, that is all the suicides, homicides, and collective violence put together and 10 times more than that. So, uh, so inequalities are, are that deadly and violence producing. And the whole world was experiencing a rapid acceleration of inequalities, as well as damage to our environment and the dangers of nuclear war, which I warned about. And so, um, and so here we are, uh, not having prevented those things ahead of time, we see the natural consequence of them, which, is, which was a dangerous presidency where the president would rapidly accelerate the dangers once he was in an influential position. And now our society, our culture, our um, political system, civic, system and uh, geopolitical stability have now been toppled in ways that uh, also could have been prevented if we had intervened soon enough with this presidency or prevented the presidency in the first place. Hmm. It's so interesting and, and I would love to get into some more of these details because so many people think uh, you know that there's not a connection right that the that the the 
the kind of example that the president leads is not causing people to be more violent. Like they don't tend to see the connection. And I, I was reading recently, like Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, and maybe he got this example for your textbook. I'm not sure, but he was talking about the cultures of violence. And he gave an example of like maybe back early in the 1900s, how trains that had graffiti on them, how there was all this uh, incidences of violence happening on these trains. But once they started to clean up the graffiti and they started to show that we care about this uh, infrastructure, that the violence decreased and that somehow the graffiti was giving people the signals that, you know, you're all alone, you have to take care of yourself and you're living kind of in this kind of survival mode and people began to act out more violently because of the, these kind of cultural impressions. And so we don't tend to see violence as like a cultural, a product of a cultural milieu. And, uh, you know, you've done work with uh, at Rikers Island. Maybe that would be a good example to talk about. But what are some examples of like, how are these milieus created? And what are some of the factors that that kind of lead to the erupting point? Yes, I, uh, given the work that um, I have been involved with uh, since violence was declared as a public health problem and a public health emergency at the time in the mid to late 1990s. Um, I have come to view it as a societal disorder and I think that is really a much better way to conceive of it as a societal mental disorder, not an individual one. Uh, also, I would like to note that mental illness, individual mental illness by itself does not make anyone any more dangerous than someone without mental illness. So, so the common popular association between mental illness and uh, dangerousness is actually untrue, but it is true at a societal level. And uh, so it is a disorder and um, we tend to think of uh, individuals as being separate from one another and we are just too individualized in our thinking that we don't, we miss the connections. Uh, and, but the fact is that violent individuals in particular are very suggestible and uh, they adopt certain means of uh, defending themselves or, uh, trying to protect themselves, as you were saying, um, because that is how they learned uh, they should behave uh, through various signals that come uh, through the culture. So you mentioned how we often miss the connection between the president's speech and words and the violent actions. In fact, there, uh, when it comes to individual acts of violence, uh, giving someone orders or causing someone to commit violence. Um, uh, it's, it's not as influential at the individual level as it is uh, at the societal level. And uh, someone in an influential position uh, speaking in ways that are known to instigate violence, for example, dehumanizing entire groups of people, uh, such as calling uh, immigrants invaders or um, calling them animals, 
uh, those kinds of rhetoric are actually known to cause epidemics of violence and uh, even genocide in many countries. The, uh, one of the, the ones I've studied includes uh, Rwanda, where all began with simply identifying a group of people with uh, animals. And um, uh, other things include uh, how appealing, uh, Donald Trump appeals to the sense of uh, inferiority or uh, lack or powerlessness in the population by enlisting them, uh, stating that, you know, you would be a true American and truly patriotic if you do what I say. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, uh, we are strong, we should not be weak, we should save the country, save the democracy, and here are the people you should target. Then there could be very few uh, orders that are as powerful as, as that. And um, among the symptoms that spread rapidly in a population include delusions or fixed false beliefs that are not amenable to facts and evidence or reason, uh, paranoia or believing that a threat uh, exists where it does not, um, and violence proneness. So violence is very contagious. So these are the symptoms that are very uh, transmissible, especially when they occur in uh, a person of great influence. And who could have greater influence than the President of the United States? Hmm. Wow. And what has been, you know, in your work in Rikers Island, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Maybe that might add some, uh, just some color to the kind of what we're dealing with today. Yes, I, I worked in Rikers Island for about a year um, uh, treating inmates and, and uh, I also came to witness a lot of violence or the end product of violence. My office was right next to the infirmary. So I saw um, those uh, individuals coming in uh, almost beaten up close to their, their death by guards. And, um, and we knew that there was excessive violence going on. Um, I was later invited to help investigate it uh, about four years later. Uh, and that is what produced the report. Uh, and I'd like to say that that is where expert reports and expert opinion can be truly helpful in uplifting the public's voice. Um, usually the narcissism of the public is um, invoked to try to uh, push out expert voices saying that, you know, uh, experts should not be allowed to co-opt or supersede public opinion. But that's not what expertise is for. Expertise is uh, the availability of information and the best available knowledge to help the public make informed choices and to buttress uh, opinions that are that are uh, good for the public interest and good for um, self-governance, 
self-governance. And so our report, which was made to the Board of Corrections, which in the past was unable to really reign in the Department of Corrections. Um, so our report ended up being the critical factor that allowed the board to uh, force the Department of Corrections to, uh, to really make changes and for the public. Once the public got hold of the report, it was their movements. They had been um, uh, protesting for years about the brutality and the um, inhumanity of solitary confinement uh, at Rockers Island and, and not able to get very far. But once they had our report, it was they who effected the change, but our report helped. Um, so I can go on and on, but I'll just yeah. leave it there. I think that you made a good point about, you know, this kind of rising distrust between the public and experts and kind of the the damage that that can cause and kind of really helping, you know, um, just a public issue be forwarded and advanced uh, so that solutions can be made. What do you think, what has been your experience? You know, have you experienced a bit of this hostility of just, you know, the public not wanting or distrusting the voice of experts? And where do you think this comes from? Actually, not at all. In fact, I have never experienced such great hunger on the part of the public for expert opinion. I was just uh, inundated with messages from the public about just how relieved they were to be confirmed in their fears and their anxieties, just to be able to put words to what they were seeing. And uh, the, the simple fact that our public service book, uh, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump was an instant New York Times bestseller, an unprecedented bestseller of its kind. Uh, Macmillan, which is one of the five biggest, uh, big five publishers in the country, could not keep up with the demand. It took them five weeks to produce enough books not to run out within an hour or two from all the all the outlets. So it was an, a truly unbelievable response on the part of the public. But there was reticence on the part of, for example, the New York Times did not review a New York Times bestseller, an unprecedented bestseller, uh, despite a half dozen seasoned reviewers asking them or, or proposing that they review the book. They blocked it in ways that were incomprehensible to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and then the American Psychiatric Association came out strongly against our book and strongly mm -hmm. uh, against us when within three months time, we were the number one topic of national conversation. I was interviewing 15 hours a day, every single day. My colleagues were interviewing. We were invited by all the major news programs and networks. There's not a single uh, top news program we were not invited to, including Fox News. Uh, I somewhat regret not taking all of those opportunities at the time, but I was trying to temper the discussion, knowing how uh, difficult it would be um, speaking about the mental health of a president who's supposed to be a protector and leader of a nation. Uh, but I did not realize that the American Psychiatric Association would aggressively intervene and cut us off within two or three weeks. We were wow. completely blocked. 
since then and permanently blocked. Wow. When you say blocked, and what, what do you mean in what way? Uh, well, again, it's nothing legitimate and nothing set in stone, but they went around the um, uh, media. Um, uh, they made public campaigns that uh, uh, made the Goldwater Rule a household phrase, at least among news agencies. Um, it's, again, I remind you, it's only a guideline that is so obscure. It was considered obscure when it was entered into the books in 1973 and by 1980 considered almost invalid because we don't base diagnosis on personal interview anymore. We base it on external observation. Wow. So uh, to promote this kind of misinformation, and they enlisted uh, the New York Times to put out their own article condemning psychiatrists who are talking about the president's psychiatric situation. And, um, and so a lot of the newspapers and media uh, followed uh, suit and instituted informal policies not to have mental health experts on to explain mental health issues, which caused uh, lay pundits and political pundits to take on the discussion. And of course, it's not relevant. And so they ended up vastly underestimating the dangers and normalizing the pathology. Wow. I know. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you take the least qualified person to speak about something and the experts who, who have a knowledge in this that you silence them? It just doesn't seem, uh, doesn't seem rational, you know? Well, having been involved in public health, uh, it was a sign, in fact, uh, the first sign of authoritarianism that I witnessed of this presidency, because what you do in authoritarianism is you, uh, you, supersede you supersede actual authority with power. And so you uh, take away uh, any uh, trust or um, public trust or uh, authority on the part of experts or those who have a responsibility to society's well-being because uh, we all have a role to play in uh, protecting and improving society and usurping that uh, for themselves. So, uh, so what happened was that they asserted that uh, a courtesy to a powerful public figure was more important than national security. Hmm, that's that's so interesting. And, and I think it just goes to show the courage that it took for you and your colleagues to be able to publish this in such a climate and, you know, that, that you really had a strong ethical, um, moral sense of your duty in this sense. And, and also, you know, kind of what you were saying about just listening to the cry of the public who was asking for, you know, uh, this type of material to be presented. So I think that that's, that, that's an incredible service that, that you've given. Uh, as we're looking at last week and we're looking at kind of how to make sense of this based off of your work, based off of, you know, the causes, uh, the consequences, the cures, like what has been, you know, leading up to this week, and maybe you can, you, you've mentioned this before, but maybe laying this out a little bit more, what has been 
the, the consequences, the causes and the cures for the violence that we we saw erupt, um, kind of kind of taking a, a head and kind of maybe the the pinnacle uh, of this uh, last administration's presidency. Yes, the causes are quite clear. The immediate uh, cause is a dangerous presidency. Uh, we had warned that if the psychological dangers were not contained, the dangers would spread to uh, being social, cultural, civic, and geopolitical dangerousness. Um, we did not know at the time that there would be a pandemic, but as soon as we heard of the pandemic, we issued a statement since early February that the eventual death toll would depend not on the characteristics of the virus, but on the mental state of the president. And now epidemiologists um, estimate that anywhere between 70 and 99% of the deaths were unnecessary. Um, and uh, of course, we also uh, predicted civil unrest and civil violence, um, violence uh, in the culture uh, that would give rise to incidents such as this. Uh, in fact, when the election was coming along, I uh, frantically wrote uh, an entire book over the summer called Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Uh, I self-published it through my organization, um, but it was a guideline as to what to do with the looming election, because he, uh, I stated already that he was not going to accept the results. If he lost, uh, he would not concede and he uh, would call it a fraud and refuse to leave office. Um, and as to what is happening now, I had said um, since the election that this would be the most dangerous period of his presidency, that some intervention was required. And after uh, last week's episode uh, and the time that it took our lawmakers to, uh, to intervene shows uh, unfortunately um, a disturbing lack of understanding of the urgency and that in fact, uh, he hasn't been properly contained. And we are now facing the most dangerous week, or perhaps it's now just a matter of days of this presidency. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the lack of education over the last four years about mental health aspects, the instruction from the American Psychiatric Association not to consider this as a mental health issue has rendered us vulnerable to the greatest mental health emergency of the nation's history. Mm. Uh, bringing, um, bringing economic theory or astrology or any other uh, conspiracy theory to the pandemic does not work as well as consulting with pandemic experts we have learned. Mm. Similarly, all the other measures have not really helped us to deal with the problem effectively without mental health expertise. Now, during the last impeachment, 
we submitted two warnings to Congress, uh, both with hundreds of mental health professional signatures, asking them to consult with us. Um, and uh, within days of our first letter, uh, there was the massacre of our Kurdish allies. And within a month of our second warning, there was an assassination of uh, a top Iranian general. So we are actually issuing, as of today, uh, a plea to the Speaker of the House and to members of Congress that they hold hearings about the mental health aspects so that we can properly manage the remaining days um, to inform the impeachment proceedings uh, as well as um, possibly reopen a case for the 25th Amendment because that would immediately relieve the president of his powers. Um, Vice President Mike Pence said that uh, he was declining the request because it uh, it was lacking science and facts. Well, we have the science and facts. In fact, the definitive facts, because we were able to do a definitive evaluation when the information became available, which were the sworn testimonies included in the Mueller report. So uh, any type of hearing, this is a report that would be admissible as scientific fact in any court. Um, we are urging them to hear us. Yeah. Wow. It, it seems like, and, you know, I say this in the, you know, in, in the humblest way, you know, it seems like the work that you're doing is the work of a prophet, right? That you're, you're speaking and, and to avoid and to warn people about a specific issue, uh, whether or not that they listen, but you're doing the duty to, to just kind of cry it out and kind of bringing it into tying in like your MDiv degree and, and your faith background. Like how do you integrate the, those two when you are uh, acting in a public way? And also what maybe advice would you give to those who are people of faith and sometimes feel less inclined to be politically involved or act within their immediate community because they feel as though their citizenship, right, is, is of heaven and not necessarily on earth. I mean, what are some injunctions or encouragements you would give to those who don't know how necessarily to blend the two and how have you walked and navigated that line yourself? Yes, my faith permeates everything I do. And in fact, it's my rock and my strength and as well as the light onto my path. And uh, without it, I couldn't have done this. I couldn't have kept the integrity uh, and clarity of ethical thinking that I described. And um, given the opposition, not of independent mental health professionals. In fact, my organization has thousands of members who have joined and uh, are actually, uh, we have a consensus as to our scientific point of view. Um, but we've certainly come against the most powerful figures in psychiatry and uh, powerful forces in the government and society at the moment, uh, as well as the violence-prone followers of the president who have uh, also threatened in ways that um, are not uh, negligible. 
Um, so there was at one point where I had to uh, hide away and was not even able to go to my office for about a month. Uh, and Yale offered to have a police escort for me on campus. Uh, so all kinds of things have happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was important in my mind, uh, very clearly uh, important without a doubt to make known the truth. And, um, and the facts and information that the public could use to protect itself uh, and was critical for the public to have. Um, and I'd like to just note that uh, faith is very helpful for science as well. Uh, sometimes it's easy to think of faith and science as being in opposition, but uh, science is not incompatible with uh, faith. Um, if done properly and faith actually helps my science because to be humble and to uh, be well grounded in uh, what I know and to accept what I don't know, uh, one requires that sense of uh, that larger picture that uh, keeps us in a sense of mystery and questioning which makes science more rigorous and allows science not to go into areas where it doesn't belong or cannot really conclude. And uh, also uh, what we know of the wonders of the human being, the human potential, um, uh, always, you know, for medical students, it used to be the first day of um, uh, human anatomy. We actually have to plunge into work dissecting a human body and uh, the wonders that arise from it, just how incredibly the human body fits together. Well, the same is true of the human mind and just how much beauty and uh, wonder we are capable of. And so there's no reason to be fearful and to avoid the question of pathology and disorder, which society brings about uh, in many more ways than are naturally occurring, we could uh, come closer to that potential and uh, achieve our spiritual potential as well. Mm. As, as you are, as we're wrapping up and concluding this, you know, what do you want someone to walk away with when they engage with your work, whether it's your textbook or uh, the dangerous case of Donald Trump? What do you want readers and listeners to walk away with when they engage with your work? Well, at this time, uh, the nation has a lot of healing to do. And that is the reason I wrote Profile of a Nation uh, and it gives some paths for the future because the first step is to remove the offending agent, which is the, uh, the influential person with severe symptoms. The second step is to uh, remove a lot of the mind control uh, programming and propaganda that exists in our media sphere at this time. Uh, both in terms of uh, uh, disinformation being propagated as news, as well as uh, social media algorithms that filter what people hear and uh, know about. Um, and the third uh, is to take care of our collective mental health 
and to address the conditions, uh, the socioeconomic conditions in particular, that have given rise to our current state of poor collective mental health. And so I give some guidance as to how to protect ourselves because even the physician who is going into an emergency, the first thing we do is to check our own pulse. So the first thing we need to do to address this crisis in the nation is to take good care of ourselves and our spiritual selves so that we can have grounding when action is required of us. And so that we will also know what the right course of action is, as well as um, tap into the infinite source of creativity and productivity and resilience that is in our creator. Hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute delight having you on and having this conversation with you. I think I've checked something off my bucket list. So I'm so glad to have had you on and I hope everyone who's listening also walks away with that same feeling. Thank you so much for having me and God bless. <laughs>